when a patient comes in, we get a sample from their bone marrow to understand what are the genetics of the leukemia. What is making that leukemia grow and cause so much damage? And those genetics help us decide, is this leukemia likely to be cured with chemotherapy alone? Or does it need a, a bone marrow or a stem cell transplant? This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and my guest is Dr. Sumi Vasu, a hematologist-oncologist here at the James. She specializes in treating patients with blood cancers, such as leukemia. Sumi is a member of the Leukemia Research Program, and she is also the Scientific Director of the Blood and Marrow Transplantation Program and Medical Director of the Cell Therapy Lab. The Blood and Marrow Transplantation Program is also sometimes called, well, it's always called the BMT program, but the procedure itself is sometimes also called a bone marrow transplant or um, stem cell transplant, but they're all the same thing. And that will be our primary topic today, a look at BMTs as well as novel cell therapies. We'll look at the actual procedure of a BMT, how and from whom stem cells are, are collected, how they're transplanted back into the patient, the recovery process, as well as some of the advances that have been made in recent years in cellular therapy that are really paying great dividends for, for patients. Sumi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me here, Steve. So I always like to start off and learn a little bit about my guest's background. So what got you into science, medicine, and oncology and blood cancer? Absolutely, Steve. Um, from a young age, I was very fascinated by the human body. And in medical school, I uh, really was drawn to the uh, potential of the uh, blood and the immune system to heal. Um, and that's what uh, got me into uh, hematology. And um, I was fortunate to, to be trained at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, with a very dedicated team of um, clinical researchers, laboratory researchers, and clinicians. And I found that the gap between translating uh, discoveries at the lab uh, and making them reach into patients and help actual patients is very narrow in the field of hematology and uh, blood and marrow transplantation. So it's, a, it's precisely a combination of immunology and the fact that we can translate discoveries to um, therapies quickly for patients. That's what got me into uh, transplant. Wow, that's a great concept that I think they call it from the bench to the bedside, taking research to treatment to patients. And that what you're saying is it's that's a complicated procedure and you need to learn how to do that so you can take these brilliant scientific ideas and they're not just ideas anymore. They're treatments that help patients. Precisely. You said it best. Yes. Wow. And is that how you came here to Ohio State? Absolutely. Ohio State University has a long tradition of uh, research in acute myeloid leukemia and transplantation. Uh, Dr. B Bloomfield was a giant um, in the field of acute myeloid leukemia. Uh, Dr. John Bird and Dr. Caligiuri had done a lot of work in developing new therapies for leukemia. And uh, my interest in natural killer cells, that's what drew me to Ohio State. Well, when you say drew you here, I have a feeling you were like a, a first round draft choice. You were you had studied at the NIH, which is, I'm guessing, really hard to get into. 
and that you may have had a lot of offers and perhaps we were lucky to get you here. Thank you for saying that. Um, Ohio State University is a very, very special place. Um, it has a very collaborative culture where um, lab laboratory researchers or researchers who work at the bench work hand in hand with clinical researchers with one goal. How do we translate therapies from the bench to the bedside quickly? And, um, and not only the medical team and the research team, but the patients who come to Ohio State University are very special as well. So when we admit a patient with leukemia or take care of patients with blood disorders who are needing a transplant, we often talk to them about clinical trials. We tell them what's the standard and we tell them what's the research that's being done at Ohio State and why. And we ask patients if they would be willing to donate samples so we can understand more about their leukemia, not just to help them alone about what is the right therapy, but also to help the next patient who walks into the James with leukemia. And over, the, over a decade of being here at Ohio State, I've noticed patients um, always put themselves and their community front and center. They willingly participate in research, they donate samples, they participate in trials. And I'm proud to say that there are some therapies that are now FDA approved because of the kindness and generosity of our patients. Yeah, I know Dr. Bird created the drug um, ibrutinib for a specific kind of leukemia that's now become FDA approved and used worldwide. Absolutely, ibrutinib is one example of many. Uh, we had another drug called Tagraxifusp uh, that was for a very rare leukemia called blastic plasma cytoidentitic cell neoplasm. And we were one of eight centers in the U.S. to have that clinical trial. I was the principal investigator of the trial, and we had patients from all over the country uh, to come get that uh, drug. And within two years, the drug is now FDA approved. It's available uh, internationally. So, so patients and researchers at Ohio State make a global impact in the care of cancer. Well, congratulations on that success and moving the needle forward. So let's dig in now to um, bone marrow transplants, stem cell transplants, and which phrase should we pick? Which do you prefer? You can say uh, hematopoietic cell transplant, um, or you can say stem cell transplant. That encompasses both marrow and peripheral blood stem cells. I'm going to say stem, stem cells transplants because it's easier to pronounce. So, so what are they and who, what type of patients would, be, would it work for? Absolutely. So stem cells are very early uh, immature cells that we all have uh, that are deep within the niches of the bone marrow. And a stem cell has the potential to recreate an entire blood population, including white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. For patients with blood cancers, who we know that they have leukemic stem cells or their marrow is, has been infiltrated by leukemia, our goal is to first get rid of the leukemia and then maintain that remission by giving them a transplant of stem cells from a healthy donor. So when we do that procedure, we not only transplant stem cells, but we also transplant healthy immune cells from the donor. And this combination of stem cells and immune cells helps the patient stay free from leukemia for a long time, sometimes decades. And this procedure is called an allogeneic stem cell transplant. Allogeneic means from the patient? 
from a healthy donor is allogeneic. Allogeneic, okay. Yes. Autologous means from the do from the patient themselves. Okay. So autologous as an auto, that's from the patient's own cells. Allogeneic is from a healthy donor. And what would how would you determine which one to use from the patient themselves or from a donor? Absolutely. For acute leukemias, uh, often we call them acute myeloid leukemias or acute uh, lymphocytic leukemias. For a bone marrow or a stem cell transplant, we typically use cells from a healthy donor. If, however, we are thinking about um, cell, cellular therapies or chimeric antigen receptor cell therapies, we typically use the patient's own cells, manipulate them in the lab, engineer it with um, a novel vector, and then give it back to the patient. So in general, for marrow or stem cell transplant, we use a healthy donor. And for cellular therapies, we use the patient's own cells. For other cancers, such as lymphomas, we sometimes use the patient's own cells so we can give them very high doses of chemo to put the lymphoma in remission. Wow, so let me step back a second and make sure I understand this. So for whatever reason, when a patient, a patient develops a blood cancer, it's often the cancer infiltrates the marrow within their bones. And this marrow is the stem cells, the immature cells that create white and red blood cells that your, your fuel and blood for your body. So these cells come out with cancer on them. So you need to attack it at the marrow level to get it inside the bones. Is that correct? Absolutely. The, think about the bone marrow as a very busy factory where trillions of blood cells are produced every day. Right. The marrow produces white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. And if there is cancer in the bone marrow, there's really no space for healthy cells to make healthy white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. And, and which bones produce the most? Is it like a, a matter of size, like your bigger leg bones or hip bones have more room to make more marrow as opposed to like your bones in your fingers or toes? They, they probably don't do as much or at all? Wherever there is bone, there is marrow. But you are right in that the big bones, the hip bones, the thigh bones, that's where a lot of production happens, our shoulders, our uh, arms. Um, when we are very young in our in a mother's womb, most of the blood production happens in the liver and spleen. But once we come out, um, then most of the blood production happens within the bone in, in the marrow cells. And so because it's in in the bone, inside the bones, it, it crowds out the healthy cells. So all you're left with is cancer cells that then circulate throughout the body, creating cancer masses. Absolutely. Uh, one of the questions I often get asked by patients is, well, what stage is my leukemia? Unlike breast cancer or colon cancer, where you know that earlier stages means limited disease and late stages are when the cancer spreads all over. In leukemia, we have blood flowing throughout our body. Right. So when someone essentially has leukemia, they have cancer in their blood, which is throughout the body. Um, so these cancers can be um, quickly fatal. And oftentimes we have to uh, get the patient in quickly, diagnose them quickly and uh, come up with a good treatment plan for their specific type of leukemia. So when were these kind of um, stem cell transplants first sort of discovered and put into use? Absolutely. Over 50 years ago, transplants started being done, 
and uh, Dr. Donald Thomas uh, at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle was actually awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine for doing the, the research on these uh, bone marrow transplants. Um, initially, people were trying to transplant marrow from animals into humans, but we have very different immune cell types, so that didn't work. And then there is another set of diseases called bone marrow failure syndromes, where there's no cancer, but the bone marrow starts shutting down. For some reason, it affects the very young and the very old, and the bone marrow just stops making white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. And each of these cells, they have a very, very pivotal role in our day-to-day -day function. And this condition is called aplastic anemia. And this was the indication for, for which our transplants were started. But then eventually researchers found out that it works as an excellent treatment for both non-malignant and for both cancerous and non-cancerous blood problems. And over the last 50 years, a lot of improvements have been made to the field of a stem cell transplant to make it more uh, safer, more effective, and more importantly, more accessible to everyone. Yeah, I know that early on that there was horrible problems with, I think it's called graft versus host disease, where the stem cells that were put into the body, the body's own immune system kind of rebelled against them. Absolutely. So when we transplant from a healthy donor, those stem cells now become part of the patient's DNA and the blood group changes from the donors to the patients. So now the transplanted donor immune system looks around in the patient's body and says, this is not my liver, this is not my skin, this is not my gut, I feel like I'm trapped in the wrong body, and starts mounting an attack against the recipient's organs. That's called graft-versus-host disease. And graft-versus-host disease, if not managed or not controlled well, can itself be fatal. And that's why the early transplants were plagued by uh, a lot of these complications until researchers found out the biological underpinnings for why does graft-versus-host disease happen in the first place. We, we are all aware of uh, blood group typing. Like if I asked you what's your blood group, you'll be able to say that. We also have typing of the white blood cells, of the immune cells. That's called human leukocyte antigen. And a lot of scientific advances in human leukocyte antigen typing led to transplants being done more safely because now we were able to identify more precisely who is the best match for a patient using DNA-based technology, and that allowed for better outcomes post-transplant. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Sumi will fill us in on sort of some of the different procedures and some of the advances in cellular therapy that are making stem cell transplants even better. In today's world, misinformation abounds, but at the Ohio State Health and Discovery website, we're addressing today's most relevant health, wellness, science, and research topics, all from the Ohio State experts you can trust. We're tapping into physicians, scientists, and thought leaders across our medical center and health sciences colleges to give you the deeper story behind the headlines and the truth about the topics affecting the health of individuals, society, and the world. Visit health.osu.edu today. We're back with Dr. Sumi Vasu, and we're talking about stem cell transplants, and I'm ready to dig in. And, and so, not every patient 
is is perfect for it. So sort of what's the difference? What would determine who would be eligible and who would not be and what 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 would make you determine what type of stem cell research to perform on a patient? Absolutely. The first factor is what kind of cancer they have. Uh, there are different ki kinds of uh, leukemia. Some of them are acute, some of them are chronic. And in acute leukemias, we have acute myeloid leukemia, acute lymphoid leukemia. We also have lymphomas. And these terms are uh, come from the fact that what is the origin of the leukemia? We have different types of white blood cells. We have some cells called myeloid cells. These are cells that typically help us fight bacterial infections like streptococcus and things like that. And if a cancer comes from a myeloid cell, then we call it acute myeloid leukemia. And then there are cells called lymphocytes that help us fight viral infections like COVID, influenza. And if a leukemia comes from a lymphocyte, then they are called acute lymphocytic leukemia. The term acute means that the, the cancer likely occurred within um, days, weeks, not months. And um, oftentimes these cancers have to be dealt with quickly. And when a patient comes in, we get a sample from their bone marrow to understand what are the genetics of the leukemia. What is making that leukemia grow and cause so much damage? And those genetics help us decide, is this leukemia likely to be cured with chemotherapy alone, or does it need a, a bone marrow or a stem cell transplant? So it takes about a week to sort out exactly what the genetics or we, we use the term mutations uh, to determine how aggressive a leukemia is going to be and whether that patient uh, patient's chances of long-term survival are best achieved with a uh, bone marrow or stem cell transplant. So that's one factor. What's the biology of the disease? The second factor is how, how fit is the patient? Can they handle a bone marrow or a stem cell transplant? What other medical problems do they have? And uh, then the third factor is uh, what kind of donor options do they have? So these are some of the determinations we do when we are thinking about a transplant, which requires cells from a healthy donor, from a different donor. If the patient has a cancer where they are requiring cells from the, from the patient, there's a different set of considerations to determine um, whether they'll be eligible for that procedure. Which is the more common, where a patient uses their own cells or where they'll use it from a donor? Absolutely. For acute myeloid leukemia, it's still the standard of care and the approach that um, cells from a healthy donor is the primary method that's used. Um, but for acute lymphocytic leukemia and for lymphomas, chimeric antigen receptor therapy or a novel gene-modified cellular therapy is making a lot of strides in helping these people get into a remission. So for acute leukemia, the way we think about it is, let's use cellular therapy to get the patient into a remission and then use a transplant from a healthy donor to keep the patient in remission. Uh, so the, the chemotherapy and maybe even some immunotherapies are so effective now, you can knock down the cancer to a much, much lower level, then do the transplant, and that gives the transplant at even better odds of working. Precisely. Yes, Steve. Absolutely. Okay. So, but I, I, I really want to hear the process of, so you've done all this and a patient is either um, 
for whatever reasons, you need to do the stem cell transplant and you can pick whether it's the patient's own stem cells or donor. What is, I want, walk us through the, the steps of that. And, and particularly the point about you need someone who's healthy and fit because it takes a toll on the body from what I understand. Absolutely. So let's start with the kind of transplant where we get cells from a donor. That's more complex and we'll talk about that first and then get to cellular therapy. So we typically start with uh, looking for a donor using that human leukocyte antigen typing or typing of the white blood cells or immune cells. Once we have the typing of the patient, then we um, ask family members, uh, parents, siblings, adult children to be typed to see if uh, anyone is either a half match or a full match. And we also start an active search in the worldwide registry. The, throughout the world, there's an organization called Be The Match or the National Marrow Donor Program, where there's uh, close to 20 million uh, registered donors who have registered on the site out of altruism to be a stem cell donor. About half of our patients will have matches within the family. And for the remaining, we'll have to find a match outside the family. So that's the first step, looking for a match. And you mentioned early on in the introduction about how many advances have been done in bone marrow transplantation. One of the key advances is how can we safely do half match transplants? So even for patients who don't have a full match donor, we can approach um, a sibling who's a half match, a child. We have even done transplants using uh, a cousin um, as long as they are half matched. So that is, that's been one of the most tremendous advances about uh, doing half match transplants safely and with comparable outcome as fully matched transplants. Is that because you've overcome that graft versus host disease? Yes, we've, we've developed approaches where, which are effective uh, prophylaxis or prevention mechanisms for graft versus host disease. That's allowed us to do half match transplants in a safe manner, similar to that what we do with fully matched transplants. So the, that's the first step, finding a donor. Um, typically, um, when we find a donor, we also have the donor be evaluated by a physician at the James. We make sure that the donation process is uh, something that the donor can handle. And there are two ways for the donor to give stem cells. One is um, they go to, to the operating room, we put them under anesthesia, we stick a needle in their hip bone and take marrow out. As you can imagine, that is an intense procedure. Um, and then the other way is we give an injection, five days of an injection called Neupogen under the skin. And all the stem cells that are hidden in the, in the marrow, leave the marrow and come into the blood. And then we connect the donor to a machine that looks like a dialysis machine, but it's actually a fancy blood spinning machine. It's called an apheresis machine. And there's, there's some properties of blood that are very dependable. For example, if you spin blood at 4,000 revolutions per minute in a centrifuge, there's a very predictable pattern that happens. Red blood cells are very dense, so they'll settle down to the bottom. The liquid part of the blood that has all our proteins will float up to the top, and the white cells or the stem cells are in the middle, and that's called a buffy coat. And nurses who operate the machine are very well trained. They know by color, the machine reads by color. And the nurses look at the color and set the interface to collect only the stem cells or the white cells and give the plasma and the red blood cells back to the donor. So that's the second and more often used way of getting the stem cells. Over half of the transplants we do at Ohio State are from um, donors outside the family. 
and I have I've had the privilege of talking to these donors to hear from them what their experience has been. Most donors are able to go back to work within three or four days of the procedure. And if they donate stem cells from the blood and not go to the operating room, they can typically go to work within a day or two. And they all have said that um, the discomfort was minuscule compared to them seeing the benefit that it gave to the patient. So it's right. a very well safe and tolerated procedure. Okay, so you have these stem cells and how do you get them into the patient? Absolutely. So we have a very comprehensive process for the patient to make sure that they can handle this procedure because we cannot just give the donor stem cells into the patient right away. We have to do a process called conditioning the patient, meaning give chemotherapy to the patient, suppress their immune system, so, and then we put in the donor stem cells. This process of conditioning is required. Otherwise, the, the patient will reject the donor. From what I understand, when, when you say give the patient chemotherapy, you give them big doses to, yes. and that really knocks down the cancer, but also knocks down their immune system. And that's perhaps why you need someone who's starting off fairly healthy because you're, you're impacting their immune system and they're going to be sick, right? Absolutely. About 25 years ago, there was only one kind of transplant. We called it the full intensity transplant, where we would give very heavy doses of chemotherapy to the patient and then follow it with a transplantation of healthy donor stem cells. And those procedures were not offered to people older than 50 years old. Thankfully, the science evolved and we then came up with something called reduced intensity transplant, where we give enough chemotherapy to knock out the immune system of the patient and we don't give massive doses of chemotherapy, but then the donor stem cells is responsible for clearing out the patient's stem cells. And these, the second procedure that I mentioned, the reduced intensity uh, transplants, have been safely done in patients even older than 70. Wow. So the, the donor stem cells that go into the body recognize the cancer cells in the bone marrow? Yes. So typically, we prefer, as you mentioned earlier, that the leukemia come down to a very low level before we take somebody to a transplant. And the reason for that is it takes time for the donor immune system to, to set up shop in the patient's body. We inject it through the blood. So these donor stem cells need to go from the blood, find out where the marrow is, go in and start the process of making healthy white blood cells, red blood cells, platelets, and immune cells. That process, those couple of days, that's when the patient's really sick, right? Because their immune system's kind of knocked out. And then as these stem cells start to do their job and grow, that's when they start getting better yes. or feel, so, feeling better. Yes. So typically, a patient stays in the hospital for about three weeks. They get chemo for about five, six days, and then the donor stem cells are infused. And the first cell to come up from the donor is the white blood cell um, or the myeloid cells. And then the platelets come up. And lastly, the red blood cells come up. The immune cells take some time. Uh, usually it takes about um, three to four weeks for the immune cell to become fully donor. But once the myeloid cells are sufficient, we let the patient go home because we know they'll heal best when they are at home with family. And um, so typically it's about a three week hospital stay. This is kind of an amazing process. And from what, what you've been telling me, it's improved so much over the last 30, 40 years with the elimination of grass, graft versus host, improved chemotherapy to knock down the cancer before you do it. 
So what's sort of the, the success rate? Absolutely. The success rate of the transplant depends on how aggressive the leukemia is. For example, the transplant is still not a 100% guarantee that the leukemia won't come back. So for many leukemias, we have to have a plan in place after the transplant to make sure that the leukemia doesn't come back. And that's where we, that's why we do clinical trials at Ohio State. So for some leukemias, the success rate is close to 80% survival at one year. For some leukemias with really uh, aggressive genetic mutations, the success rate can be much lower, 30%. This is why we do clinical trials to say, how can we move that needle forward? How can we make that number go from 30 to a lot higher? And despite the advances, graft-versus-host disease can still occur. And that's another reason why we have clinical trials at Ohio State to prevent GVHD. And despite all that, if the GVHD still happens, how can we um, uh, hit it fast and effectively and quickly? And that's another area where we have clinical trials for GVHD treatment. Okay. And now this is a, an area that I'm really fascinated by, the cellular therapy concept where, let's see if I can sum it up before you go into details. It's when you take these stem cells and immune cells out of a person's body, either the patient or a donor, you can then take them in the lab and sort of supercharge them so that they're extra good at killing cancer cells. And then you put them back into the patient's body. Is that, am I somewhat close? Yes, you, you did a great job, Steve. Absolutely. <laughs> so in, in cellular therapy, one of the therapies that have been hailed as a breakthrough is uh, what's called chimeric antigen receptor uh, cellular therapy or gene modified cellular therapy. If you think about it, the patient's own immune cells are, are in the patient, but for some reason they are not recognizing the leukemia as bad and not killing them. This is why we have to take um, the patient's immune cells out so we can make them smarter so they can be directed to kill the cancer cells when they go back into the patient. How do you do that? Like, what do you inject or modify those cells to make them uh, better killers? So we've all been struggling with COVID for the last two or three years, right? Yes. So virus, viruses have a property. Viruses do not have their own nucleus. They rely on coming into a host or our, our cells and the nucleus in our cells to grow and divide, okay? Imagine you take that property of the virus where it can get into a cell, inject itself into a host cell and divide. So we exploit that property, but instead of just injecting a viral vector, we add a protein that can make it recognize and kill a tumor cell. So the backbone is a viral vector. Go ahead, Steve, you have a question. So you don't actually add the virus into it. You add the protein that allows the virus to to replicate faster than a normal cell. So now exactly. these immune cells now replicate faster than they normally would. Exactly. And these, because it's on a viral vector, it can integrate it into a host uh, DNA and replicate very fast. Oh, because it's, yeah, it's the patient's own immune cells. It's okay. Exactly. There's no graft versus host disease. There's no possibility of rejection because it's the patient's own. It's just slightly modified. So to illustrate this point, there's a type of um, leukemias and lymphomas that have a protein called CD19 on the surface of the cell. 
And what we do here is we, we with the viral vector, we have an anti-CD19 protein, okay, that is transfected into the viral vector. And once a gene-modified T cell engages with the cancer, the anti-CD19 meets the CD19. Think of it as a lock and key. You know how they are a perfect fit? Yeah. And when that engagement happens, you want the T cell to say, oh, this is something I need to kill. And that's called signaling molecules. And that makes the T cell start secreting a lot of chemicals called cytokines. You know how when we have the flu, how we feel, we have fevers, our whole body aches. And the right. reason we have all those symptoms is because of cytokines. The T cells are trying to kill the virus and in that process secrete all these cytokines. And that's why we have the symptoms we do. And, and so these signaling molecules are also transfected into it. So not only does the T cell, which previously in the patient's body could not recognize the cancer, but now because of gene modification is smarter and can recognize the cancer. So not only does it, does it do a good job of recognizing the cancer, but it also does a good job of proliferating, expanding and creating the cytokines. So it's a one-two punch more cells that better recognize cancer and and grow like bananas gangbusters to go and attack the cancer and that's why one of the side effects when we give these cells is called cytokine release syndrome because suddenly these cells really um, look at um, what's going on and when they see a lot of tumor they engage and they create so many cytokines and that's why these patients are in the hospital, so we can do a good job monitoring them. Because they're going to have symptoms, like flu-like symptoms or things Precisely. like that. So, okay. Yes. So this sounds amazing. How new is this and how many patients are you giving this? I think it's called CAR T-cell therapy, right? How many patients are getting this? Absolutely. Dr. Samantha Jaglowski, she leads our CAR T program here at Ohio State. And she has treated over 60 patients each year at the Ohio State University. We were one of 10 sites that did the original clinical trials that then led to the approval of these CAR-T products. So now these products are commercially available. And um, we have patients with different kinds of lymphomas that come to the James to get this treatment. And one of the areas that we are working on uh, for research is these uh, commercially approved CAR-T therapies are manufactured by a pharmaceutical company in the other side of the country. So we collect the patient cells, we send them to them, they manufacture it and they bring it, bring it back to us. The research that we are working on now is, can we manufacture those cells? Can we manufacture CAR-T cells right here at Ohio State in our own cell therapy lab? And that's what I'm doing. Oh, do you think you can? Yes, Dr. Marcos de Lima, uh, who joined Ohio State last year in April, has been a pioneer in um, manufacturing cell therapies. And together with him, we started a clinical trial where um, the commercially approved CAR-T therapies target one antigen called CD19 on the surface of the cancer cell. We are manufacturing a CAR-T here at Ohio State that targets 19, 20, and 22, three different antigens on the surface of a leukemia cell. So the cell therapy lab here at the James, which is on the first floor of the James, as we speak, the first manufacturing for the very first patient on the clinical trial has started. So by identifying more things on the surface, you're 
giving yourself more, you're giving the immune system more targets, you're making it even stronger, the response. Precisely, yes. Because what happens sometimes in CAR-T therapies is the cancer outsmarts us. It says, oh, well, you're trying to attack me at CD19. Let me come up with a different uh, protein that I can still keep going. And sometimes that different protein is markers called CD20 and 22. So what we are trying to do is, can we create an immune cell that's gene modified to attack all three antigens at the same time? So this is amazing. And it, this, I was going to ask you about what's the advantage of working at and being a big part of a comprehensive cancer center connected to a major cancer hospital. And I think you just described it, this clinical trial and the resources available and the number of patients and clinical trials you have available is what leads to this exact advance that you're, you and Dr. DeLima are working on. Absolutely. Uh, only a handful of centers in the United States have this capability where they can manufacture cells in their own cell therapy labs. So we are really at the cutting edge of that kind of research. And um, we are hoping to stay one step ahead. CAR-T therapy opened a new, entirely different paradigm for how we can use the immune system to treat leukemias and lymphomas. And now we are taking it to the next step and saying, let's look at um, how cancers break through CAR-T therapies and let's um, uh, design the second generation of CAR-Ts that can overcome these mechanisms by how cancers can escape CAR-Ts. Well, that's fascinating because Samantha Jaglowski was on this podcast. It's got to be more than a year ago. So it was much earlier in this process. And we didn't talk about these additional targets, the 19, oh, what numbers, 19, 20, and 22. 20 and 20. So, so that just shows within the past year, the advances you've made, which leads me to wonder that what do you see down the road with CAR-T and other um, new therapies three, five years down the road? How much further along are you going to get? Absolutely. This is a very, very exciting time to be at Ohio State, Steve, because when we uh, develop this uh, new 19-20-22 CAR-T, so the FDA considers these trials as first in human. So the bar to develop these therapies are very high. We needed to develop all the assays from scratch, but now we have it working. So our hope is any cancer researcher at Ohio State, say they're working on brain cancer, pancreatic cancer, lung, breast, they come to us and say, we found this target that works well for lung. Can your lab make CAR-Ts? And we will be able to make, them, make it for them. So the foundational structure for how we make CAR-Ts, we have established that. Now it's a plug and play system to use a different target and make CAR-Ts for breast cancer, for lung cancer, for brain cancer. So the future is very um, uh, optimistic in terms of helping the maximum number of patients possible who come to the James for different kinds of cancers. So this CAR T cell is going to be a more and more common and more and more important and better treatment down the road for every for almost every kind of cancer. Absolutely, Steve. Yes. So what's that like to be at the the forefront at the a pioneer in this great new technology? It's like being the the guy that you talked about who won the Nobel Prize for developing stem cell transplants. You're sort of along that same line of a whole new treatment that's gonna save lots and lots of lives. It's very, um, I, I consider that as an honor and privilege, Steve, to be in that position. Um, and that's why I go back to that dedicated 
team that we have and the amazing collaboration we have between researchers and our patients. But that's the point of working in a place like Ohio State, where we are pushing the needle forward, where we are pioneering a whole new type of therapy. So it's a, it's a very um, exciting time for both patients and researchers alike. Well, thank you for sharing this really amazing research. Thank you, Steve. And thank you so much for giving us this opportunity. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur D. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.